else, if you would, take your Bibles with me. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is where we will be today. As we began last week, we began a, a, uh, what I hope to be a three-part sermon, although it could potentially turn into four, but uh, my plan is for this to be a three-part sermon series on the gospel and salvation coming to the Gentiles. This turning point in the life of the church, this turning point in the story of redemption where for thousands of years now, the people of God has been classified as the Jewish people, the people of Israel, with a few exceptions of of those who have been converted to Judaism. By and large, up to this point, when you were to talk about the people of God, you were talking about the Jewish people, the Israelites. We see now here in the book of Acts this monumental moment, this monumental shift in the story of redemption that the gospel, salvation, as it had been promised earlier in the book of Acts, is now about to be extended to the Gentiles, is now about to encompass all on the earth, that there is no longer, as we talked about last week, the dividing wall of hostility described in the book of Ephesians, but it is in this chapter, before our very eyes, being demolished, being broken down, being ripped to shreds, so that the Lord is making out of his people, out of both Jew and Gentile, one new man, one body, the church. And so we have all kinds of reason to to look deeply and closely at this chapter, this moment in the history of the church, this moment in the, the story of redemption, and to learn everything that we can from it today. And so we will be looking today at Acts chapter 10, Verses 9 through verse 33, we're going to cover a rather large portion of Scripture, so bear with me as we read, and let us pray that the Lord would use this for His good purposes today. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, An upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and and to hear what you have to say. 
So he invited them in to be his guests. The next, day, the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too, <coughs> I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I would say you may be seated, but I never had you stand, so I apologize for that. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today and ask for your guidance. We ask for your help. Lord, we come to this very unique, a very particular, a very special kind of passage, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it rightly and truly. Pray that we would understand and see the implications, the ramifications for us as your church, as your people here today. Lord, that we would see it as more than just an interesting story, but that we would see it as having an impact for years to come. Even today, we feel the impact, we feel the weight the significance of what this passage means for us, a Gentile people. And so, Lord, we thank you and ask for your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage a great amount of change. And change can be a very difficult thing to deal with. In fact, change can be life-altering. We can think of a few examples of how of how change can bring absolutely life-altering aspects to a person. Sometimes they can be very negative. If you think about those who, who win the lottery, you know it's a very common thing for people to win the lottery and then within a few years to be completely bankrupt, to have completely spent not only all the money that they won in the lottery, but all the money that they had before that as well. We see something Somewhat similar to that in the case of athletes, professional athletes, these young men and women who, who having been introduced to this huge income of money at a very young age, and largely a lot of them having no idea what to do with them, it's actually, you might not realize this, but there was, there was a 60 Minutes uh, interview, an episode that was done some time ago, that was talking about this very issue. The fact that many, many professional athletes after their career is ended and they are done playing and that paycheck has ceased, though they made 
millions and millions of dollars in their career end up after their career and oftentimes immediately completely bankrupt, oftentimes dealing with all sorts of other issues as well, like alcoholism and drugs. And what we find oftentimes is that the, the change of having this huge income of money, especially on these athletes who are oftentimes very young when they enter into the professional field. I mean, athletes are coming sometimes out of high school into these professional athletic settings, making millions and millions of dollars, having very little understanding of how to use this kind of money, of how to manage it well, of, of, of what the proper sort of things should be for them to do and end up ultimately squandering it. And in many cases, to an extent, ruining their lives. A simple change like a paycheck for these people, oh, it's a big paycheck, I grant you, altered their lives in a dramatic and in many cases, devastating way. One simple change. They were already playing the sport, right? They were already engaging this lifestyle, but the change that came with this influx of money, in many cases, ruins their lives. But it's not always a bad thing. In these instances, change can, can bring devastation. It can bring all kinds of hurt and destruction. But ultimately, and additionally, there are other examples of change that has entered into people's lives and, and certainly altered the course of their life forever. But in some cases, it can have a very positive effect. I think one of the most prominent examples that I can think of of this is a woman by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, she is a woman who, at a young age, is a very young one, I believe she was a teenager, she was a, involved in a tragic diving accident where she was swimming in a lake and she dove into what she thought was deep water and ultimately was not and broke her, her neck and, and ultimately spent the rest of her life and has spent the rest of her life confined to a wheelchair, barely able to use her, her arms and completely unable to use her legs. But if you know the story of Erickson Tata, you'll know that that one change in her life that came when she was but a young woman has had a dramatic impact on who she is now. And while most people would think, well, introducing a huge paycheck every week to a person's life would have to be a good change, right? It would have to bring good things to a person's life. And, and a person having a broken neck and being paralyzed, that could only be bad. But what you see, in fact, instead... If you know the story about Eric, Johnny Erickson Tata, if you've heard of her life, if you read, have read any of her books or listened to any of her lectures, you'll know that Johnny Erickson Tata herself would point to that moment, that change in her life as one of the most significant and important things that ever happened to her. A woman who is now confined to a wheelchair and yet a woman who because of the life, because of what the Lord has brought upon her, certainly a great amount of pain, certainly a great amount of suffering, certainly a great amount of inconvenience, she would say that this instance, this change that was brought to her life has been one of the most important aspects of her life to lead her to see and understand and fully grasp the great sovereignty and glory of God. Indeed, she would say had it not been for this moment, she would probably not have her the, the faith and the confidence and the joy that she now has in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's glory being perfected in 
our weakness is something that means far more to Johnny Erickson Tata than what it probably ever will to many of us. The Lord brought a great amount of change in her case. And in her case, the sovereign Lord who, who saw fit to, to bring her into the place where she was, confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, has brought upon her also the greatest amount of joy and satisfaction because of him. In our story today, we're seeing the Lord doing a great and dramatic work of bringing change into the life of his people. Indeed, change even into the life of Peter specifically. Peter, having already seen so much change in his life, going from a fisherman to a disciple of Jesus, having Jesus, his teacher, his, his Messiah crucified on the cross and then rise from the dead and now being a part of the mission of God to take the gospel to the nations. He has experienced a great amount of change in his life. And yet, even for Peter, one of the most difficult changes that he's ever going to face or have to come across, he is about to experience here in our text today. A change that will have a huge effect on his very reality and perception of the world. And it all starts with this vision in verses 9 through 16. We see Peter's vision. This vision where he sees this something like a sheet descending down out of heaven. As Peter is up on the roof, he's at the house of Simon the Tanner, if you remember. Already a significant step because we know about tanners, that they deal with dead animals. And for Jews to to deal with dead animals, it was considered to be unclean. So it's already a significant thing, right, that we touched on a few weeks ago. But now Peter, as he is up on the rooftop in prayer in the middle of the day, he sees this vision of this sheet being lowered down to the earth. And in this sheet, all these different animals, we see here that there was all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, we read in verse 12. The idea being that in this sheet, there was a mixed bag of animals, some who were considered by Jewish tradition to be clean and good to eat, some that were considered to be unclean, common, that Jews were not to eat, were not to associate with. It was outlined very clearly in the law of God. You can eat these animals, but not those. And now we see this sheet that has descended down to heaven containing all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean. And the Lord commands Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. He tells him to go and, and, and take from this, this mixed bag of animals. And he says, take your pick, kill it, and eat it. And we see Peter's reaction where he says, by no means, Lord. It's a pretty bold statement to say before the Lord, isn't it? If any of us received a, a vision and a direct command from the Lord, I would hope that none of us would react the way Peter does. By no means, Lord. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can't do that. But that's exactly how Peter reacts. He reacts to this, to this vision here as he has seen this sheet descending down in a way that is off-putting, saying, by no means, Lord. He says, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. We see the Lord say, do not call anything that I have made common. Whatever I have made clean, 
do not call common. And we see this, this repeated three times. The same thing happens. The Lord tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord. The Lord says, do not call anything I have made clean common. And again, a third time. This is a rather fascinating vision, rather fascinating experience. And there's a few things I want us to note about this experience that Peter had. Some things I think are important for us to notice and see. First of all, when did this vision come to Peter? It's important that we not miss this. Peter was in prayer when this vision came. It's actually also the case that Cornelius was in prayer when the angel visited him, when his vision was came. Actually, if you read the scriptures you'll, scriptures, you'll notice that it is often the case that these kinds of visions and miraculous things happen when God's people are in prayer. I don't think this is a coincidence that these kinds of things in scripture often occur while we are in prayer. I think it backs up the claim that scripture makes its, itself about prayer that there is power there, that we are called, not only that we are called, but that we benefit from spending time in prayer with the Lord, that it is an act of obedience, an act of worship, and yet one that, I think if many of us were honest, we would say we don't engage in the way we ought. In fact, I think for many of us, our prayer life has come down to just those certain events throughout our day that sort of call us to prayer. Like before we eat a meal, we might pray and ask the Lord to bless the food or, or thank the Lord for the food. Or, or maybe before bed, we'll spend a little bit of time in prayer, right? It's the thing we do before we go to bed. Maybe, before, maybe when you wake up in the morning before you start your day. And all of those are good and right. But what we actually see from Peter and what we actually see common throughout the life of Jesus as well is that Jesus would set aside and designate particular times throughout the day specifically for prayer, meaning it was planned. It wasn't just whenever a certain thing arose, like a meal, okay, now let's pray, but it was that there were particular times throughout the day that they would commit and set aside specifically for prayer. And I would say for Christians today, it is equally as important for us to do the same. And I fail in this. And I think we all probably fail in this. We're so busy with what's going on in our lives that we basically conclude, even if we wouldn't verbalize it, that we are too busy for prayer. Too busy to stop what I'm doing at work. Too busy to stop what I'm doing with my family. And to dedicate time to prayer. Or we might, for some of us, think that it feels a little too much like what other religions do, designating time for prayer, as though if we, if we set aside particular times to commit ourselves to being in prayer, that we are somehow engaging in some other religious aspect. But I would argue that what we see from the scriptures is that Christians have been doing this ever since Christianity began. Before that, the Jews. It's no coincidence, I think, that these kinds of things happen during prayer. Now, this does not mean that when you enter into your, your prayer closet, when you go into your bedroom, when you get away and you pray, that you are definitely going to have these kinds of visions. That the Lord or an angel of the Lord is going to appear to you and miraculous things are going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. But I would go as far as to say, we as the people of God, we as the church, oftentimes sit back and wonder, 
Why isn't the Lord moving? Why isn't the Lord doing much in our church? Why isn't the Lord, Lord doing much, much in my life or in my family? And we are oftentimes maybe quick to lay the blame or the accusation at the feet of God as though he is the one that is not moving. He is the one that is not active. And yet when we sit down and consider how often do we commit ourselves, our lives, our time to prayer, yet we so pridefully and arrogantly conclude that it must be God's choice not to move, not that we are in error. I think oftentimes that is the case for us as believers, that we fail to spend the kind of time and energy and devote ourselves to prayer the way we ought but Peter does. And it's in this prayer that this vision comes. And we, we see this instance where, where Peter is, is presented with these animals. And as the text says, he, he refuses the command of the Lord, saying, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And if we aren't careful in our, in our understanding of this text, of this event, that Peter has experienced, we might fail to understand it correctly or see the significance of what has just happened to Peter. Yes, the, the immediate understanding of this vision, which Peter clearly understood, he understood what the Lord was doing, what the Lord was commanding him, was that this was an abolition of the Jewish dietary restrictions. That's the most immediate and, and rising to the surface understanding of this vision. As the Lord descends down this sheet of all these various animals, some clean, some unclean, saying, take and eat. And after Peter refuses and says, I've never eaten anything unclean, the Lord says, do not call anything that I have made clean, common. And so this is a right and, and correct understanding of the Lord's immediate context in this vision. And when you think just for a moment about what this would mean for Peter alone, that the Lord is now, is now saying, hey, Peter, you know this thing that's been a part of your life forever? As long as you've been alive, you have been a Jew. And indeed, I'm sure Peter was telling the truth when he says, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And the Lord has now done something radical and said all of that Jewish tradition, that Jewish practice, indeed, according to the law that the Lord himself gave, the Lord is saying, that's out. We're done with that. We no longer need that. The purpose of those dietary restrictions, indeed the purpose of all of the Jewish law and tradition has been fulfilled. Do you want to hear more about that? We've got plenty of sermons over the book of Hebrews that we did where we looked in depth and over and over again saw how, how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so here, what Peter is receiving from the Lord is basically a statement saying, your traditions, your lifestyle, your whole paradigm for living is all about to be changed. I know nothing unclean has ever touched your lips, but guess what, Peter? It's all about to change. With this in mind, we can understand why Peter would have responded to the Lord the way he does. It seemed almost wrong to, to take of these things which he knew full well that the Lord had commanded, do not eat these things. But now he was being directly commanded by God, eat these 
things. We can understand then why he reacted the way he did. Yes, I think perhaps Peter was a little overly bold, a little overly zealous. This is kind of Peter's MO, right? He was, this isn't actually the first time that he's like tried to rebuke the Lord. He said similar things to Jesus. But we begin to see that it's not just that he was overly bold or prideful or arrogant. There was a part of that. But it was more than just belligerence that led Peter to say this. It was Peter's commitment to the law of God and the commands of God that now in his mind were being changed, were being altered. Indeed, great change was beginning to come and shift Peter's whole paradigm. But while the immediate meaning, the immediate context of this vision had to do with food, there was a much deeper, a much more significant meaning to this event, one which you and I are privileged to know now, but one that Peter was soon going to fully realize. And we see in the next verses, this is point number two, the turn. In verse 17, we see Peter is trying to figure out what exactly did that vision mean. He already knew, okay, so clearly the dietary laws that the Lord had laid out no longer apply. He made that very clear by commanding me to eat these unclean animals. He was inwardly perplexed at the, what, the, what the vision that he had seen might mean. Peter knew there was something more, something deeper to this vision. And as he was sitting here thinking about it, dwelling on it, we see the Lord sending these men who, if you remember from last week, we saw last week Cornelius sent them out saying, go find this one Simon Peter who is living with Simon the Tanner. All of this is happening at the same time, remember? That at the same time as, as Cornelius received his vision and then sent these men out, that is when the Lord delivers this vision to Simon, or excuse me, to Peter. And now we see what represents this portion in our text, Peter's beginning to accept the reality of what God has revealed to him through this vision. Though he doesn't fully realize its full impact, the full reality of what this means for his Jewish identity, he is beginning here in this section, verses 17 through 23, to understand that something more significant has happened. This would be extremely difficult, I think, for Peter. Mo many of us probably did not come out of, we're not saved out of other strict religious contexts. But for people who have been saved out of other religious contexts, such as Mormonism or Islam or Buddhism or Catholicism, we'll know that coming out of those things and to Christianity, to the gospel, and beginning to let go of those other traditions, those other ways of life can be extremely, extremely difficult. And that was especially true of Peter, this man who had been a devout Jew his whole life. His whole life revolved around these traditions, around this way of living, and he's now beginning to realize that is being undone. It's being changed. And this would have been extremely, extremely difficult for him to grasp and to accept. And we see again here in this situation the divine orchestration of this whole event as we consider the timing of the Lord. As the Lord is both at the same time working in Cornelius and he sends these men and then at that time working in Peter, preparing him, preparing his heart for this crazy change that is about to come to his life. And 
after that vision, right after that vision, as he is pondering, as he is thinking through what it, what it might mean, what would happen, but these men come and knock at his door. And the Lord says, hey, Peter, there's some men at the door. I've sent them. I want you to go and do what they say. The Lord is divinely orchestrating this whole event. And we see the most significant portion of this section, I think, in verse 23. And it's this line. So he invited them in to be his guests. Who were these men that he just invited in to be guests? They were not Jews. They were not Samaritans. They weren't Jews or Samaritans. They were Gentiles. It was strictly opposed to the Jewish tradition to ever go in and eat and be the guest in a Gentile's house and even more so to invite a Gentile to be a guest in your house. You were bringing on filth. You were making your very house unclean by doing such a thing. We begin to see that Peter is beginning to let go of his Jewish tradition. He's beginning to accept the change in his paradigm as he does exactly this and invites these Gentiles into his house. If his Jewish friends would have seen this, they would have been livid. And yet Peter engages in this most significant and humbling act of allowing these Gentiles to come in and be his guests. I think at this point, one thing that we can take away from this is we can see that Peter's conversion was real. And I say this because Peter has now come to a point where the Lord is shaking things up in a dramatic way for him. And this is affecting his very lifestyle and his tradition. And his faith is now being tested. And this is the time for many people who claim Christ when things begin to get hard, that they fall away. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You recall the parable where, where Jesus tells of one who was sowing seed. And there was seed that landed on the path and seed that landed on rocky soil and seed that landed in thorny soil and then seed that landed in good soil. <clears throat> and you'll recall that it was only the seed that landed on the good soil that took root, grew, and then bore fruit. And it was only that group who had a true conversion, who was truly saved. But we read in Matthew 13, 20 and 21 of another of the group of seed. Matthew 13, 20 and 21 says, as Jesus is explaining the parable, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. This is the moment when many in Peter's shoes, who though they had, they had seemed to, to accept the gospel right away, who had seemed to accept what Jesus had to offer, but then when things began to get real and began to get hard, and your reality begins to be tested and your traditions begin to be put away with, your preferences, your desires, your comfort begins to be interrupted. It's in this moment when we begin to see who is truly converted and who is not. What does Peter do in this case? He doesn't back down. Even though this was difficult for him, 
the accepting of Gentiles into his house would have been extremely difficult for him, going directly against his grain and all that he had held to be true his entire life. He is now, because of the command of the Lord, letting those things go. It's doubtful, as I said, that many of us in here or in the church in the West, for that matter, have had to face this kind of, uh, of paradigm shift like Peter had to face. Yet for so many of us, the smallest amount of loss or change that, <clears throat> that living for Christ might bring is too much. For many here in the West, whenever things begin to get at all difficult, they're out. Whenever being a Christian begins to actually cost you, they're gone. I think we've begun to see this a little bit in our culture today where where for a long time here in the United States, it was like the cool thing to do, the popular thing to do to be a Christian, wasn't it? It was, in, in, in essence, it brought upon a certain kind of social capital to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, or at least to call yourself one. But I think as of late, what we've begun to see is that to call yourself a Christian now here in the United States is increasingly becoming less and less of something that builds social capital, but one, a label that begins to bring disdain and rebuke and hatred. And although that's a difficult thing for us as Christians, we never want to wish for that to be the case. We want to be able to exercise our faith freely to proclaim the gospel freely to to be bold and not have to face any opposition and yet what we also see and know to be true that in this what the lord has been doing and showing is that there have been many who have fallen away many who as it has become difficult have decided maybe it's not worth it they like the seed that fell on rocky soil had no root though immediately might have sprung up When things got hard, they proved that their conversion was not real. But not so with Peter. When tribulation came, he faced it and he took it head on. And church family, difficulty is destined to come in the Christian life. One of the most amazing books that's been written outside of the Bible uh, for, for Christians to read, and I would encourage every Christian to read it, is A Pilgrim's Progress a book that over and over and over again has demonstrated itself to be a very practical and clear way of teaching and understanding the Christian life. And in Pilgrim's Progress, we see when, when Christian comes to this place called the Hill of Difficulty. And what happens at the Hill of Difficulty? There's he and there's two other men named Formalists and Hypocrisy who he had met along the way. And when they come to this place at the bottom of the hill there are three paths in front of them one that goes directly up the hill it is called the narrow path directly up the hill of difficulty and there are two other paths that go around and to each side one to the left and one to the right and when they get to this place it is christian only who makes his way up the hill of difficulty but what happens to formalists and hypocrisy They look at that hill of difficulty and look at the other options and say, these other options seem way easier. And so they follow those ways, those paths known as danger and destruction, and ultimately prove, if you were a careful reader of the book, what you already knew to be true, that they were not true 
followers of Christ. For indeed, if you remember earlier in the book, if you've read the book, you'll know that unlike Christian, who came by the way of the cross and who was given new robes and who was given the scroll and the seal, he met these men who climbed over the wall into the way, who did not come by way of the cross into the path that they were walking, but had entered a different way. And ultimately, they proved what was true of them from the beginning, and that was that they were not true believers. Christians, there is coming for each of us, if it hasn't already come, a hill of difficulty for you. And I'll tell you right now, there are other ways around. Being a Christian is going to be oftentimes one of the most difficult paths that you have before you. In fact, paths in this life in general are easier if you're not a Christian. And you will be tempted. You will be tempted to turn one way or to the other rather than face the difficulty of truly living for Christ. But this is why Jesus says in Luke 14 that we are to count the cost. That we are to understand fully that following Christ, though it means life, though it means joy, though it means eternal favor with God, life with him forever, it does not mean an easy life. It does not mean no difficulties. And we need to recognize that as believers, knowing that although that is the case, it still is worth it. I say this all the time, but we are called to count the cost, not so that we can see if Jesus is really worth it or not. Because if you truly understand the cost of following Jesus, but also the cost of rejecting him, then you will know and you will realize every time that whatever it is, it is worth it. On one hand, you have Christ and a life dedicated to him, which might mean suffering, it might mean difficulty, it might mean persecution, but ultimately leads to life. And on the other hand, though it might mean ease and comfort in this world, it ultimately leads to death. Peter understood the cost of following Jesus. And he understood full well that as much as he loved his traditions, as much as he, he loved his Jewish identity, it wasn't worth losing Christ. Then we come to point number three, where Peter meets Cornelius in verses 24 through 33. Notice in verse 24 the preparation that Cornelius makes to hear this message. I, I love this. What we read in verse, uh, verse 20, 24 of Cornelius, it says, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together all his relatives and close friends. Cornelius, knowing that a man who we already established as a God-fearer, when he received this vision, when he received this message from the angel of the Lord, said, God is going to do something here. And he began to gather all his family, all his friends, as many people as he could, knowing that a message from the Lord was coming. He gathered them together so that all might hear what the Lord had said. He makes great preparation before hearing the word of the Lord. And then when Peter arrives, we read that Cornelius in verse 25 fell down at his feet and began to worship. Now the word worship here, though it is translated worship in the the ESV and certain other translations, it doesn't necessarily imply that he, he thought that 
Peter was somehow God or, or, or deity. It could rightly be translated as reverence, that he bowed down and showed him all reverence, a, a deep respect even. But even that for Peter is suspect. Because as we know in this life, it is oftentimes a very thin line between showing reverence, showing deep respect, giving undue favor or attention to Christian leaders. It's a very thin line between that and moving into unhealthy worship. And so Peter says, absolutely not. Stand up, please. I, like you, am a man. I don't need you to show me any kind of reverence or awe, for I am no different than you. I am a man. And then finally, in verse 28, by his own tongue, we see here that it becomes evident Peter began to understand truly the meaning of the vision that he had on Simon's roof. In verse 28, we read this. And he said to them, this is Peter, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. He said, you know, you know as a God-fearer and these people around you who know the Jewish tradition that it is wildly inappropriate for me to be engaging and entering into with Gentiles. And yet, he goes on, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. We see that Peter actually understood his vision for all that it meant now. For he didn't say, he showed me that no animal should be called common or unclean. But he understood now as the Lord had been preparing Cornelius and as the Lord had been preparing Peter and he'd come now to this place having received this vision say, now I understand that God has created all people and he has commanded that they are all clean. So he understood now that this vision that he had had was about far more than food. It was about far more than dietary laws and restrictions being abolished. It was about that dividing wall of hostility being removed. That there is no longer, not just no distinction between clean and unclean animals, but there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. Indeed, in him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ Jesus, all are justified by his blood. That is the reality that Peter has now come to. And here again, we have this story retold for us a third time. And after this, we see the people ready to hear the word that Peter was to bring. Cornelius says, I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. He's saying, hey, we're ready. We're here. I've gathered my family. We are on pins and needles. We can't wait to hear the word from the Lord that you have come to bring us. Understanding and anticipating, knowing that the vision that the Lord had given him was preparing for him to hear a word from the Lord. And that is exactly what Peter was there to deliver. The anticipation and excitement and the preparation demonstrated by Cornelius and his family, that ought to be incredibly instructive for us as believers today too, shouldn't it? How many of us, before coming to church, to hear from the Lord, to open up the very word of God, to worship 
the Lord in truth. How many of us thought in this way? Thought to prepare ourselves for worship. Or ask the Lord, Lord, prepare my heart for worship this week. Prepare my heart for worship this morning. Prepare my heart for worship tomorrow. Certainly, I would never, never want to indicate that before you come into this place to worship, you have to somehow get your heart right. You have to somehow get in the right mindset. Absolutely not. Church family, come and worship the Lord, for he has commanded us to do so. But we still ought to consider the reality that what we do here each week is far more than hear just some lecture, as far more than just sing some cool songs with a good tune, but we come each and every week to worship the Lord. For some people, as we talked about earlier, unlike Peter, there are some people who are unwilling to accept the paradigm shift that coming to Christ means. And sad as it is, for some, even sacrificing time each week to worship the God who created them and sacrifice his own son to redeem them is pushing the envelope. Indeed, for many Church is one of those things, worship is one of those things that is easy to just push to the side. If something more fun comes up, if something more seemingly important comes up, I mean, we're going to be together again next week. I can watch it online. It's not that important that I, that I be there. I can see the recording. I can go and read the sermon manuscript, whatever the case may be. And it becomes so easy for so many to take the worship of God that we come together each week to do, the God who has redeemed us, created us, sacrificed his own son to save us from our sin, we can so easily cast aside the worship of him. You may have heard some preachers say before they, they preach, pray something like this, saying, Lord, keep me from being a hindrance to what your people would hear today. A prayer that I can relate with, resonate with. The reason prayers will, preachers will often pray something like that, and the reason why that is my hope, is that in the same way that Peter was now coming to deliver a word from the Lord to these people, it is a very real danger, a very real threat that a man, a preacher, can, can become a hindrance, can become a stumbling block, can get in the way of the message that the Lord would have his people to receive. And I know that to be the case. Even as I prepare each week, I know that my own pride, my own shortcomings, all of these things run the risk of interfering with the word of the Lord as it is preached. And so that's my prayer, that I would be out of the way of what the Lord would have to do. There is a temptation, I think, even to, to think, why don't we just open up God's word and read it? Just eliminate the human equation altogether. Similar to when we said last week, why didn't the angel of the Lord just declare to Cornelius the message so that he might receive it? Why does it have to be Peter bringing it? Why does it have to be that he has to go through all these extra steps? And yet, as the Lord has demonstrated, it is his will and his purpose to use people, to use us as his means, to use the preaching of the word as his means to direct his people, to, to teach his people, and to bring the gospel to his people. But we as Christians need to be like Cornelius and his family, eagerly 
awaiting a word from the Lord, ready to hear from the Lord. And, and preachers, those who deliver this message, need to be like Peter, prepared. They need the Lord to, to guide them and to direct them into all truth, into all righteousness, righteousness, so that they might teach the word of God faithfully. What we ultimately see through all of this is that as the Lord is bringing change, he's bringing change to Cornelius and his family, he's certainly bringing change to Peter and his reality, that the Lord is directing all of it. There's all kinds of things that could go wrong in this whole story. Things that could be messed up left and right. And if this were left up to human means alone, it would have been. It would have gone wrong. But what we see to be true here and what we know to be true in our lives is that the Lord Jesus, God who is sovereign over all things, is directing every step of this instance. Every moment that the gospel is being extended to the ends of the earth, it is because God has decreed it and he will see it through. And so today as believers, as those who, as we've talked about, had counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, we can know, like Peter, that there are going to be times that come in our lives that there's going to be a great amount of change, that there's going to be difficulties that come that are going to make us uncomfortable and are going to cost us. But we also need to, like Peter has, recognize that whatever it is that the Lord has called us to do, whatever it is that he has called us to sacrifice or give up, it is according to his good purposes and he is good in it. That all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose as we read in our declaration of pardon today. And we will continue to see next week as this group of Gentiles is now primed and ready to receive the gospel that the Lord is going to accomplish his will. And he's going to wow Peter, and he's going to wow all the disciples, and he's going to wow the Jerusalem council, and is going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, as we'll see next week. Let's pray.